0: Thank you for that. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Lemon. I'm an alcoholic.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm delighted to be here. And I said Thursday night, you all would do more for me this weekend than I would do for you, and you've done that. <clears throat> I want to thank Tim for this privilege. He walked up to me two years ago at Gathering of the Eagles, and... Uh, Said we'd like to have you come to man to man, and I said, well, I'd love to do it. And he said, can you come next year? And I looked, I said, no, I can't. And he said, can you come in two years? And I said, if I'm still mowing the grass, I'll be there.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm still, you know, and I'm delighted to be here. It's uh, I want to thank Mike Barnes for everything he does. And an interesting thing, he was at the airport to meet several of us. And a young man was there with him. And I'd lost touch with this young man for 15 years. But when I knew him, he was an good, awfully good member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he had two or three other young guys around him that I had the privilege of sponsoring all of them. And they've all left California, and they're all sober today. And as we came into the baggage claim there, Mike Hogan was too. And we pre-upped, you know. And I tell you, you, uh, the beautiful part of who we are and what we are is the fellowship that we have here. And the fellowship attracted me long before I could under, understand anything in the book. I was too rummy to understand any of the steps, the traditions, any of that. And it's the fellowship that kept me in here. And you meet people along the road, and you meet people in your early sobriety that you bond with, and they become the closest friends that you've ever had. And all of you know that in here. And there are a couple here tonight. That I go back almost 40 years with. One is Greg sponsor. And that's Roy Lee Bell. I know everything about my, his family. He knows everything about mine. We've traveled to the North American continent and, and Mexico in Alcoholics Anonymous. And how wonderful it's been to spend the time with him. Because I love him. And there's a man sitting here on the front row his Name's Bob Pizanz. I met him early in his sobriety and still fairly early in mine. I know his family. I know his three boys. I know his lovely wife, Linda. They've been in my home. I've been in theirs. We've been all over together. And you know, I don't see these guys on a regular basis. But when I do see them, that same feeling is there. The same feeling is there that I love them. And I truly do. And when they brought me back to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't know what love meant. And they told me that I had to love myself. I didn't even like myself. So how could I possibly love myself? And you put your arms around me and loved me until I could start just a little bit to like To like me. And then through the process, and we're all in a process, a little love came, a little more came, and a little more came. And you gave me that gift. And as I stand here tonight, and I tell everyone in my life every day that I love them. Because I truly do. Because you have shown me how to do that. I want to say up front, and for me, this is the most important thing that I will say tonight. The greatest single happening in my lifetime is Alcoholics Anonymous. My sobriety date is March the 5th, 1965. Those applause are for Alcoholics Anonymous. I sat in the meeting on Thursday night over at Leadership Lodge, and as we went around, and I knew that this was man-to-man for alcoholic men and for Al-Anon men, and that excited me. And as we went around the room Thursday night, half of that room were either Al-Anons or double winners. I'm also a member of al And my home group there is the Laguna Beach Men's Stag on Tuesday night. My home group in Alcoholics Anonymous is the Anderson Men's Stag on Thursday night. Now, there are a group here from California that belong to that both of those groups. And I'm going to ask them all to stand up.
1: Good friends. All of them are
0: double winners, with the exception of one. All you double winners, sit down. We we need some sanity in the group, and this is a pure Al-Anon. And John Ryan acted like he didn't want to stand up. And we sent him to you about a year ago because we'd done all we could do for him. (laughs) And Austin, good luck. He's a tough Irishman, but we love him. And if you've seen that coach that's rolled in out here, when you go out of here, look at that thing. Because four of them left Southern California on Tuesday. And they rolled in here at 11 o'clock last night. And the guy that owns it and driving that has got 35 years of sobriety. That shows what sobriety will do for you because when he came in for a long, long time, he couldn't read and he couldn't talk. And he's a great member of Alcoholics Anonymous and a great member of Al-Nan and all these men are. And I'm a privilege to be a part of their groups. And I want to thank you again. You know, I've—they've uh, meant a lot to me, and the fact that they're here means a lot. And I walked up to thank the speaker last night, and the guy grabbed me and hugged me, and it was Don Maloney. And I understand he uh, was one of the men that started this. He started a lot all over. And he reminded me immediately of Crested Butte and how he took me to the top of the mountain. I had to stay over because I was going to go to Denver the next day to visit a lady I loved a lot that was failing health, and that was Gracie Aronofsky. He took me to the very top of that mountain that most people don't get to, and I don't want to go again.
1: (laughs) We were in his
0: jeep. And I was on the side that you looked down, and at three to 4,000 feet within a foot of me, and you said, you've got to trust me. And I said, what the hell other choice do I have? <laughs> and I've never forgotten it, and God love you for doing it. It was beautiful looking over the other side down. I never want to do it again. <laughs> We've told a lot of fun stories this weekend, and one we told, if you know Don and all of you do, and you've never heard the chicken story, and that came up again today I, when he was drinking. I want you to all walk up to him and say, tell me the chicken story.
1: <laughs> and you've got to hear
0: it. But you know, that's what we have here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I had the privilege to sponsor one of Bob's sons. I love all three of them for a while. And he knows, my, he knows all of mine well. He knows my two daughters. He knows my son well. And what a blessing that is. What a blessing that is to have the people. And all of you sitting in here tonight, look, to, look at each side of you. Look in front of you. Look behind you. Because these are the people that are going to hold your hand and we hold each other's hand and we're all on the same path. And as we walk along, that's what it's all about. There's nothing in our society, nothing, like the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Al-Anon goes hand in hand with that. And we are blessed. And if you're relatively new tonight, and you're here, and you've got a lot of feelings, and you're scared to death, you were afraid when you walked in here yesterday or today, or we got a man that's got 24 hours, you're home. I have never met anyone, never, that got to Alcoholics Anonymous that was here by mistake. And that has not changed.
1: My story is your story.
0: If you did it, I did it. And if I didn't do it, I thought about doing it. I'm a single as a purpose guy. I drank alcohol, and it damn near killed me. That's the simplicity of it. And I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got sober the old-fashioned way I was given this gift. It's called Alcoholics Anonymous. It was 49 years ago, this past Christmas, that I came to, rolled up in the fetal position, and I'd been a blackout drinker for several years. And I didn't know where I was. And I was on the south side of Atlanta. And I'd gone to work out of college for a company, and it was whispered that there was a man there there was a member of AA, and I stayed away from him
1: <laughs> because people
0: had been questioning my, my drinking for, for a long time. But I want to tell you on that Christmas morning, they lived on the north side, and I called them, and they came to get me, he and his wife. And they're the ones that brought me through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time, and I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to be alcoholic, I certainly didn't want to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we didn't have a lot of young people back then. And I went to meetings, and everything they said went in one ear and out the other because I wasn't seeing, I wasn't hearing, and I didn't want to be. I'm a Californian by residence, a Kentuckian by birth, and an alcoholic by absorption. My disease, the practicing part of it, took me all over this country. And I'm not going to talk all about that. But, you know, I came into the world. One of the things that we've heard the last 20 to 25 years, a lot of talk about, and it's true, it's real. A lot of people talk about they're from dysfunctional families. They're all, and a a lot of people had abuse in their childhoods and everything. I, too, am from a dysfunctional family. You are looking at the dysfunction in my family. (laughs) It's that simple. I was born into a home where I was given a lot of love as an only child. Too much. I was given every opportunity that a human could ever want in in life, and it was never enough. Very early in life, you know, I didn't know that everything that I was doing had a fear base. I knew none of that. I grew up in an era, and I don't blame my environment. I don't blame my parents. I don't blame any of that. But you didn't talk about anything. You'd sit at the dinner table, and everything was above board. You didn't. Uh, you certainly weren't going to tell them you had tremendous feelings of impending doom. <laughs>
1: everything was fine, fine,
0: fine, and you be a man. You be a man. And you know, I desperately was trying to do that. But when I discovered that magic elixir that all of you discovered, it changed my life.
1: Because it enabled me to do
0: things with a certain degree of comfort that I was unable to do. And I've never forgotten that. And I don't usually go into all of the beginnings and all of that. But I tell you what, it leveled me out. It leveled my playing field. I don't remember when I took my first drink. I cannot tell you that, but I can tell you when I took my last, and the men that saw me. And it's a progressive illness, and mine is one of a progressive, very quick progressive disease. Because I, uh, you know, the four C's really characterize my drinking. I drank in the beginning for comfort, and then I drank for control, and I crossed that invisible line, you know, and total corruption was by, you know, was the full result of, of, of my alcoholism. All of it. And it continued on. And people started to tell me, Len, you've got great potential, but. And I was to hear that over and over and over again. And it didn't matter whether it was school teachers, coaches, my family, my friends, out in the, the workforce. But I was to hear that a lot. And one thing led to another. And uh, I, grew up in a, I grew up in a home where there was no drinking that was visible. They all hid their booze. I grew up in a religion where, you know, they didn't drink. But I did. And I continued to. And I was to get out of school. And I couldn't get, wait to get out of that environment. And I went to work for a large company. And they sent me to the southeast. And it wasn't long before they started to talk to me about the way I drank. Why do you drink so much? Why do you say the things you say? Why do you act the way you act? And all of a sudden, I knew they knew. And when I thought they knew, then I had to make a change. And I was able to make some changes very quickly in the early days. But then changes were made for me. Because I was to lose jobs, I was to lose friendships. I was to lose family. I was to lose everything that was meaningful to me in my life as a direct result of my disease. And I continued on and on and on. And I ended up, when I got fired from that company, that oil company that I went with, another door opened very quickly. And I had an athletic background, and that was taken away from me too as a direct result of my disease. And a door opened, and I got an opportunity to get involved at a coaching level in the southeast. And here I was, a leader of men every day and a drunk every night. That's the Jekyll and Hyde we know so much about. I also had the job at that school of doing the color commentation on the network for basketball. I got fired from that. I got fired from both jobs. And I find myself pulling a trailer, going back through the mountains of Tennessee, into my hometown, being willing, and I didn't even know I was willing, I had no other choice, to go into the family business, which I would refused to go into several times. I had no other choice. I looked around, my friends, my perception was my friends were meeting their responsibilities. They were married, most of them, and here I am, an immature, insecure, irresponsible drunk. So I got married, unfortunately for the lady.
1: We had a daughter out of that
0: marriage, and my, I, my disease was galloping, and uh, thank God they were able to get, a, get away from me and go to Chicago. And I had to go on with, with what was going on in my life. And little by little, I started to swing in and out of the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got out of that family business. I was fired from that family business.
1: <laughs> and
0: I headed back to Atlanta and in and out, in and out. We didn't have treatment facilities then. The only treatment facility that was open back then was Hazleton in Minnesota. But they would detox you or they made a lot of 12-step calls back there. And AA people would come sit with you and they would walk with you and they would give you fruit juice and honey and roll syrup and all of that. And I had uh, developed DTs along the way and I was in and out of places like that. I had a man in Georgia die in my room one night had a seizure and died in my room. But I continued to do whatever was necessary to take a drink. I came to one morning, and I had no idea where I was. And I looked over, and there was no door knob on my side of the door. And I was to find out that I was in Milledgeville. Oh, yes. I was in Milledgeville, Georgia, which was the state mental institution in the state of Georgia. I wasn't there as an alcoholic. I was there as a number of the state of Georgia. And I want to tell you that I was as terrified as I've ever been in my life, and I knew that if I ever got out, I'd never take another drink. And I was there over four weeks. And they finally let me out. And I had a bus ticket to Atlanta and $3 in my pocket, and I called the athletic director that had fired me, and he said, "Uh, Where are you? And I told him, I said, I'm coming to Atlanta. He said, we're going to Lexington tomorrow, which is my hometown. And there's a seat on the airplane for you, Lynn, if you want to go. And then he asked me where I was going to stay that night. I said, I had no place to stay. He said, there'll be a bed for you at the YMCA. I got off that bus, went to the YMCA, got up very early the next morning, rode to the the airport with the team, flew to Lexington. Went to Memorial Coliseum, and they worked out. We went down to Lexington, checked in the old hotel. I listened to the pregame plan, and there was a noon game the next day. They'd started to televise college basketball. The play by play announcer was there, who was a good friend of mine, and I spent time with him, and we went out the next day for the game. And uh, a lot of people in that arena had known me all of my life. And I'm two and a half days out of Milledgeville, so you can imagine how I was. Basically, I was terrified. And they finished that game, and uh, I went back to the hotel with them, had dinner. There's an early flight the next morning. I went up to go to bed, and my alcoholic thinker flicked on, and I said, "I wonder who's in the Bluegrass Lounge that I didn't see," and that's the bar in that hotel. And the other side said, "Go to sleep." I went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I found myself getting up, walking the elevator, taking the elevator to the lobby, across that lobby, into that lounge, and I drank ginger ale for the better part of an hour. I do not remember, as I stand here tonight, of having a conscious thought of taking a drink, but obviously it was there. It had been in my subconscious. It had moved up, obviously. I remember very clearly walking down those steps through the revolving door right across Main Street to a bar called the Golden Horseshoe, and I remember taking a drink. They left there the next morning without me.
1: Three days later,
0: my dad was city manager of that town. He had the riot squad to come take me out of that hotel. Straight to jail. Two men stood at my jail cell the next morning. I'd known all my life. One had been my first basketball coach. The other was a dear friend of mine who's still alive today. He's a little older than I am. And he was the acting police judge. And Tommy looked at me and said, What is it, Lynn? I I didn't answer him. And John looked at me and said, Lynn, if you come back and do what you've done the last few days, we're going to lock you up permanently. All as a direct result of a disease called alcoholism. And they put me on a bus with a one-way ticket. And I want to tell you, after that I could take you all over these United States. In and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, using the members within the fellowship, but still not wanting to be an alcoholic, still not wanting to be an AA, all the way across. I got to Texas. Because I'd met some people in Texas in the oil business, so I was coming to Texas to go in the oil business. Oil business. Bologna. I left Dallas, Texas. I thought if I can get to California, I'd never been to California. I left a hotel in Dallas, Texas. Wrote a counter check. You could write counter checks back then that had no account. Got on that airplane. Paid the airfare with uh, a counter check with no bank account. I got off of uh, the airplane LAX and I came out of a blackout. I never want to forget the next seven and a half months because I was on the streets of Los Angeles. In and out of recovery houses and then finally I'd been 86 from all of them. And my drink of choice was no longer my drink of choice. I'd do anything to just get a Mickey or a jug of wine. And I continued to do that. I had my second seizure out here. And an interesting thing, it was in a church in central Los Angeles. The Church of Religious Science, which was the Mother Church. And uh, they took me, uh, put me in the car, the the minister's car, a man named Hornaday. I had no idea. They took me to Central Receiving. I ended up at County Hospital. And it went on and on and on. And, Interesting part of that story. Three years later, I went with Chuck because Chuck was ordained in that church. And I went with him and he would go go talk at that church. And Ernest Holmes, the founder of that church, tried to get Chuck to come in. He said, I'll never do it. He never did.
1: But I would go with
0: him and Chuck introduced me to the music director who was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous of that church. He said, oh, I remember, Lynn. We put him in Dr. Hornaday's car and took him to central receiving. It's a small world. But it went on from there. I'd like to tell you that was the end of it. You know, I did whatever was necessary to support just one more drink. In the end, the bottle beat me to death. It had taken away everything that was near and dear to me in my life.
1: And I ended up at a place in Los Angeles.
0: Well, I didn't end up there, but I was in the Cecil Hotel, living in a room with two other winos. And I was put on the street, not by the hotel, but by the two winos. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the one thing I held on to, because I had somewhat of an athletic background, was if I could stay in shape physically, I don't have a drinking problem. That had to all go. When they put me on the street, a woman that was a social worker found me. And she knew I was in bad shape. And she said, I need to take you somewhere. I need to take you to county. I said, they won't admit me. I've been there. I've been there too many times. So I said, there was a man in central Los Angeles who will always give me a bed in a flophouse." So she took me there. She went home. She was so concerned, she called her family doctor. He said, I've got a patient that's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll have him call you. And he did. I didn't call Alcoholics Anonymous again. It was over. I'd lost the power of choice. I'd lost the power of everything. And we talk about that first step. I didn't know I was perilous. I knew I was almost dead. And he and another man came and got the key and came in there. And I tried to get up off the floor and tell them who I was. And I was a sick, dying drunk. And they were to put me in a car, and they saw me, and they had a bottle that they brought with them. And But way back then, when we made 12 step calls, you always took a half pint with you. And they saw me take my last drink, and up it came. And they put me in a detox place. There were two in, in Los Angeles that that at that time, called the Beverly Lake Sanitarium. And i tell you, I, I was one sick cookie. And I knew Alcoholics Anonymous didn't work. I knew that God was not in my life, because why was I in the shape that I was in? But lying there in DTs and in horrible shape, I cried out in silent desperation to no one in particular, knowing that no one would be there. And little did I know that a surrender had taken place in my life. Little did I know that I'd had my last drink. I knew none of that. Back then, they would send people in from AA. And they sent a guy in with the big book. And he would sit at my bed, and I was coming out of my skin. Sitting and in, lying in this bed on the linoleum, and just in the corner, and he would read and read, and i think, my God, will he ever leave? <laughs>
1: And he became a dear
0: friend of mine. I thought he'd been sober forever. He had five months of sobriety. And he would go out, smoke a cigarette, and come back in. And I was there for almost two weeks. And had no place to go because no one... I'd been 86 from everywhere you could go. All the recovery houses, everything. But the two men that put me in there called a man that owned the Bimini... The Royal Palms, you know. That's a lot of years ago. That man named Pat Wigger, and I, he was the an next cop And uh, he said, all right, we'll take him back. They put me back in the Bimini. They put me in the kitchen washing dishes. And I was still shaking pretty badly. I vibrated. And they said, maybe you better dry dishes.
1: <laughs> but... <laughs> I tell you one thing.
0: You went to meetings. Either in there at one of the other facilities or they take you out to meetings. And I was so rummy, that's all we did. We went to meetings, went to meetings, you didn't take a drink. I didn't sleep, and they, the old-timers back then said, that's not going to kill you. You're not going to die from loss of sleep. They were tough. And thank God they were. And I heard a man talk very early in my sobriety, and my only thought was, No human can live the way this man sounds. No human can live the way he talks. And I had no idea who he was. A couple of weeks later, I heard him again at the Arlington Group in Los Angeles. And he came over to me and said, son, how are you? I said, fine. He knew better. He wrote his name on the back of a card and said, I want you to call me. I told him where I was in the morning. And I didn't call him. A couple, three weeks later, I was taking the Beverly Hills Memstag. It was his home group. He was there. He came to me immediately. He said, if you don't call me tomorrow, son, I'm going to call Pat Weir. And I was terrified of him. Because <laughs> he, he pushed me off the porch of the Bimini twice because I was drunk. I'd, ha- I'd have my wine bottles in the, in the ivy, and uh, he kicked me out. So I called him. And little did I know that he'd planned all of this with Pat. But he would I would get a pass and he would pick me up and I'd get in the car with him and we would go all over Greater Los Angeles. And there would be everybody loved him. And he carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. I still didn't realize who the man was. And sometimes they would give me a pass and I'd ride the bus and transfer and meet him at his office. And he talked to me about his relationship with our co-founder Bill and about he and his wife traveled, and you, Bill, and Lois real well. And he talked about... He carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous and thank God for the old-timers that carried that message for me. Thank God for them. Because I clung to them. And he went on and on and finally I was released from the Bimini. And I moved to the San Fernando Valley and moved in with two sober members of alcoholics that were employed and, and I was unemployed and unemployable. I'd get up every morning, walk two and a half miles to the North Hollywood Clubhouse. I'd stand there until it opened. And those guys, used, those old timers ate nails. I want to tell you. Go to the coffee bar. See what you can do. And back then, we didn't have the styrofoam cups. They had the, uh, you had the pottery mugs. I was sitting in a meeting in West Los Angeles in a place called Ohio Street, still there today, It's where the Pacific group was started. It wasn't the Pacific group. It was the Monday night group. And they said, "Is anybody, the coffee maker got drunk, anybody can make coffee. I raised my hand. I got involved. That kitchen's still there today. Two big coffee pots. You made the coffee. You served the coffee. You washed the mugs afterwards. You washed the coffee pots out. Before I knew it, I was making coffee for five groups. I didn't know that was being of service. I had no idea. The only thing I knew is it made me feel a little better. Because all of us come here feeling like we're different. Everyone that walks through that door feels like you're you're different. Little did I know that you'd experienced exactly the same feelings, the underlying, the same fears that I had. Little by little. And it was very slow with me. The layer started to come off. Because I got into the steps. I had good sponsorship. And let me tell you, I truly... I'm an absolute believer, and it's a must for sponsorship. I've always had a sponsor. I've never changed sponsors. They've died. And that makes Dave Cook a little nervous. Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: but I tell you, it's so, so important. And I don't care how little or how much time you need. I was talking, Bob, we were talking yesterday, and he his sponsor died a year or so ago. And he had to change sponsors. We all need someone that we can talk to, that knows us, that knows everything that's going on. Because you see, the ism, guys, because we stopped drinking, here's where the problem is, from the neck up. It's the ism, and it stays with us. So I've always had a sponsor. And it's been a privilege to sponsor, guys. And I learned very early that the whole thing's about love and service. And I didn't know what that meant, but I know today. And I know that the more involved I am in your life, the less involved I am in my own. And it's that simple. So I hope all of you here have a home group. I hope all of you have commitments. I hope all of you have guys that obviously do that you're hanging with because they understand you and you understand them. It's just like the two men that started this. One drunk talking to another. And there are a lot of things that have come around and are intertwined now with... uh, I don't even like to use the word. We were talking about it yesterday. It's called addiction. You know, I'm an alcoholic. The bottle beat me to death. I've come in here and the program of alcoholics Anonymous has saved my life. That's the simplicity for me. And there have been no shortcuts and no substitutes. And I'm not saying that you don't need outside help necessarily, sometimes. And people do. And you seek what you seek at the time. I was three years sober, and my original sponsor said, you're going to alumni. I said, no, I'm not. And he said, yes, you are. You're going to go to six meetings. And I went to a men's tag in Malibu, California, for six meetings. I didn't hear a thing. It went in one ear, out the other. I said, I don't need this. I've got Alcoholics Anonymous. I will tell you that as I look back today, that I needed it then. And when I got back years later, later I even needed it more when I was able to come into Alabama. But little by little, that first year, all I was able to do was not pick up a drink. That was it. But I went to meetings morning, noon, and night. I rode the bus. I didn't get a car until so I was nine months sober. A guy out in the valley had an old Buick up on blocks. He said, if you can get tires for it, you can have it. And I got tires for it, and you could hear it coming for a mile and a half away. But we would load that up, and we would go to meetings. We'd take panels. You know, and that's what we did. And back then, we would meet before the meetings. We'd meet in coffee shops. And after the means we'd be in ice cream parlors, we'd be in coffee shops, whatever it was. But we all hung together our whole life. The middle of it was Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what we did. And thank God for it. My total income the first year I was sober was $1,237. And I was overpaid. <laughs> but I was blessed. But I've had some doors open for me over the years. And I've had some clothes too. It's called life. It's called life. And we all experience it. And there are bumps in the road. And I was in a meeting toward the end of my second year of sobriety. Brentwood, California. Speaker meeting. A lady walked to the podium to read chapter 5. It's the most beautiful lady I have ever, ever seen in my life. She was five, ten blonde and drop dead, gorgeous. And it's a program of attraction, and I wanted what she has.
1: <laughs> and Bob and Roy
0: and you are well. She was a lovely, lovely lady. And we were to fall in love and have an incredible life together. And life started to increase a little bit. I got a job, finally. I would go back to that sanitarium, if I could, every morning and sit with that lady that ran that sanitarium, the Beverly Lake. And she would go to the farmer's market and shop for vegetables and everything, and I would go with her. Just hanging on. And little by little, some things started to change. And I was to get a job. And then another job. But I stayed involved every day and every night in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Pam and I were to get married. But before that, I had gone through the steps I got through my eighth and my ninth step, and my sponsor knew. I'd gone through it also with a man named Father Barney, who I had bonded with, who was a wonderful man. He was an alcoholic priest. But I'd left one person out, and I knew I'd left it out because that fear was there one more time. of The fear of rejection. The fear of abandonment, with the fear of rejection. And that was that baby that I had right out of college, not long out of college, when I married that lady. And I hadn't seen her in ten years. And my original sponsor told me exactly how to do it, to sit down and write a letter. And I paid no attention to it. Because I'm a manipulator. I was pulling a lawyer off bar schools in Los Angeles, pretending to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And all I wanted was visitation rights to see that daughter, and he got them. And I called her mother and I said, I'm coming back to Chicago and I want to see Gail. I'm going to spend the the weekend with her. And I hung up. I'd done everything but take a drink when I got on that airplane. I was on the worst dry drunk I've ever been on in my life. I got off that airplane in Chicago and went to a downtown hotel and I knew I was crazy. You taught me well. I called Alcoholics Anonymous. They said, you're two and a half blocks from a meeting. It's a meeting that was called the Mustard Seed. And I walked out of there, walked into that 6 o'clock meeting, and the only thing I can tell you an hour later, I walk out less crazy than when I walked in. I went back to the hotel, I called her mother, I said, what time can I pick Gail up? She said, Lynn, she doesn't want to see you. And thank God it happened that way. Because I tell you, it put me on my knees that night in that hotel, and I gave it up to God. And I got up and wrote her mother a separate letter of amends, and I wrote Gail a separate letter of amends.
1: And I went down
0: to the lobby the next morning and got stamps, and I remember mailing both those letters. And I remember one more time I was given a gift, the gift of freedom. I got on that airplane, came back to California. I stayed in touch with that daughter. And About a year later, her mother called and said, Gail would like to see you. And I was uh, in New York on business, and I came back through uh, O'Hara, and it was a a snowstorm and a blizzard, and I thought she'll never get here. And she came to the airport. And that relationship started. And shortly thereafter, she moved in our home in Laguna Beach. And I was privileged to be able to put her through college. And her mother and her new family came out, and we, Pam and I had two children by then. A girl, and then a son. We all went to her college graduation and she walked up on, her, on that stage to get her diploma. And I sat between Pam and Gail's mother. And Gail's mother turned to me and she said, Len, I can't thank you enough for what you've done with Gail. And for Gail, I said, don't thank me. Thank Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, she's gone on. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman today. She went on to law school and She's out there and she's just, what a woman. What a lovely, lovely lady. And thank God, thank God that's happened. And Pam and I were both active in Alcoholics Anonymous. She was active with a lot of the women. I was active on the men's side. As a matter of fact, I understand that Woman to Woman meets at this uh, facility. Well, the founder of Woman to Woman, the first one, was Pam Wilder. And it was in San Diego, California. between 35 and 40 years ago. And it spread across the country because everywhere I've gone, uh, I always hear the woman to woman. But the first one was started out there. And she was active. And a wonderful lady. And we moved to Laguna Beach in January 1972. And that's when Chuck said to me, you're mine now. And I said, what do you mean? He said, just what I said. I said, I've been yours. He said, but you're mine now. You're here. And it's official. I said, you don't sponsor people. He said, I'm going to make an exception with you. (laughs) And thank God he did. Because he had already given me so much. And you know, life was good. And Bob and Linda were in our home. Peter came out and stayed with us. You know, life was good. Roy was... Everybody, you know, it was kind of the center in our area of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, bam, had started to go to al anon I hadn't. But, anyway, life was good. And in 1984, I was at a conference in Florida with an Oklahoma lady that I loved, and you did too, Ramona. A great lady, a great al anon And after I talked, she said, let's go call Pam. We went to the room to call Pam at home. Her mother answered the telephone. I said, why are you there? She said, Pam's in the hospital. I immediately called South Coast Hospital. She said, it's nothing. I've just got a lower back pain. Ten and a half months later, she died. It was leukemia. We went to UCLA. She got in remission three times. She was a strong, beautiful, just incredible lady. You surrounded us. You, being members of Alcoholics Anonymous, al Nine and Alateen, and I had the privilege at that time of sponsoring a, co-sponsoring an Alateen group. And what a privilege that was. You surrounded us. You took care of our kids. You lined up at UCLA to give blood. You did what was ever necessary. And that's what we do here. We take care of one another, and I've watched it go on over and over and over again. We get out of meetings and talk badly about each other, but when somebody's in
1: trouble,
0: and every one of you in here has done it, but when someone's in trouble, we're there to help them. We're there to help them because that's what we do. I am totally convinced that we're put here to take care of one another. I truly believe that. And Chuck showed me through his actions, the old-timers did, but Chuck in particular, how he went out every day for free and for fun and and to help others. And little by little, I got that, but not all at once. For free and for fun, and what can I do to help you? I've always been a controller, a take-charge guy. What can you do for me? I might act like I'm trying to do something for you, but what's going to come back for me? It took a long time for that to change. And the, last, time, the last, thing, last place it changed was in my home. But thank God it did. I was 19 years sober. A man asked me one night what kind of relationship I had with myself. I said, terrific. I was coming back down from e- I was coming back one night from East San Diego County. And I got thinking about that. What kind of relationship do you have with yourself, man? And I became willing one more time to get vulnerable. And it was scary. And it was about a year after that, about a year and a half. And I did a lot of writing. I've always done a lot of writing. Pam had died in 1985, in October. Elsa was a surrogate mother to me, and a lovely, lovely woman. And that was Chuck's wife. And I had lunch with her the week after Thanksgiving. And Chuck had died. And then I'd lost Pam.
1: I had a lot of
0: financial problems. Everything in my life was upside down. And I talked to Elsa and she smiled and she said, I think you better turn yourself into Owl <laughs> <laughs>
1: And
0: you know what I did? I did it. I went into her group that she'd started in her home had gotten very large. She'd moved it out of Laguna Beach as the lot, And there weren't any men around. One or two would drift in every now and then. But I didn't go in there where somebody had had time in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went in there as a newcomer. I went in there as a newcomer and those women put me together and I found a men's group. It was the original men's stack group in Orange County. They met in Costa Mesa then. And I was going to that group and an alcoholic came to me about a year and a half later and I was going to the Monday noon meeting. And those women, I can't tell you, helped me tremendously. And they said, you've got to take an inventory, and I started to, I didn't know how to take an al inventory, I just started to write. And I was doing some business in New York then, and there was a tough, tough lady in New York, her name was Ellen Hayes, I loved her. She ran the program uh, on the barry for the city. And she was in AA and al and she was tough. And I called her uh, one November night, she said, come over to my place. She had a little fire going, had stew on and everything. I started to read everything that I'd written I'd written an epistle. She just reached over, took it, put it in the fire, and it burned up. She said, we've got something relatively new, but here it is. It was the blueprint guide to progress. And for you that don't know what that is, that's the four-step guide in that line. And it wasn't the one like we've got now, but I did that one. I found a man to sponsor, and I proceeded. A year and a half after that, an alcoholic came to me that I was dragging to the Men's Stag Alon meeting from Laguna Beach, and said, "You need to start a meeting, an Alon meeting in Laguna." I said, "No, I don't. I don't know enough about Algon yet, Pat." So we started it. I brought five Al-Nons down that were pure al I mean, I had some sense not to bring the double winners or alcoholics in there. We, I brought five Al-Nons and they gave us the structure in that group. And that's the group we've got today. And off of that group, Steve, what have we got? Three meetings that have started of men's tags. And we've got a lot of men that are active, a lot, in our area in al And I tell you, the programs go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. And it's incredible what it's done for me. It's taken me to a deeper level. It's made Len Wilder a more loving, caring, giving, honest man. And I'm so grateful for it. I'm so very, very grateful.
1: And I was doing a
0: workshop not long ago in Brentwood, and it's a, it's a, it's a, as many people as are in this room. And afterwards, there were questions and answers. And I was standing up there, and I always, I said, you know, I was doing it. It was an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And a guy stood up, and he said, are you telling us that all alcoholics need Al-Anon? I said, in my opinion? He said, yeah. I said, absolutely. And I truly believe that. And I used to say that in the meetings, and the women would say, don't say that. I said, don't worry about that. They're not going to break the doors down."
1: (laughs) But I truly
0: believe that because I know what it's done for me. These guys up here will tell you what it's done for them. All of you that are here know what Alan does for you. And my, my kids are all adults today. We have five uh, grandchildren. And you know it's helped me with that. It was ten years ago about right now that we were at a birthday party in Laguna Beach, an AA birthday party. Music and everything going. My wife came out and said, take this call. I said, okay, she said go in the house. I went in the house and uh, closed the bathroom door. My son had left Laguna and gone to college in the east, worked in New York, gone back and got his second degree in the east. and He's doing fine, I thought. I'd heard some stories he told me I look back now and I can see he wasn't doing too fine. But I didn't recognize it at the time. And it was this it was his girlfriend who had been his girlfriend for eight years. And she said, We can't find Jim. I said, What do you mean? She said, Well, we came home last night, the night before, and this was the following night. We were to go to a wedding in Newport, Rhode Island the next morning. He said, I'll be right back, and he hadn't come back yet. We can't find him, we looked everywhere. I was terrified. We left. My wife and I left. Program people followed us home. We prayed all night. I knew he was dead. Next morning about eleven o'clock the phone rang. He said, Dad, I need help. I tried to figure out who I knew in Boston. I'd known the Indian. He was dead. I'd known another man. He'd moved to Florida. I called a man that I'd known I was involved in pulling him out of his truck many years before that was head of general service. He said, have Jim call me. Jim called him and two members of Alcoholics Anonymous made the 12-step call. Like his dad. He was 29 years old. He didn't want to be an alcoholic. He didn't want to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he had achieved a lot. So he swung in and out for about 10 months. And I finally got the call. He said, I'm not getting it. So he got on an airplane and came to California. Came out of treatment 30 days later and didn't know if he had his job, didn't know he had, he certainly didn't have his girlfriend, he didn't have anything. But he had Alcoholics Anonymous. Just like I did, just like you did. Just like Bob's three boys have had it. And you know, little by little, the process started. And what a great member of Alcoholics Anonymous he is. He's going to have nine years next month. And my cup runneth over. I stood at a podium like this. It was the banquet podium at the Massachusetts State Convention about three or four years ago. And I looked down and the two tables right in front of me were all young people. And most of them at those tables my son sponsored. He carried the message. And you know, I had to look away. I was so grateful. And he's been an active and good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that he's been given the gift that I was given, and you know, life goes on, and uh, willingness has been a key for me. And I was upside when Pam died. I was upside down financially. I had to file bankruptcy the day before she died, and I didn't want to do that. I was too proud. I knew that my family would be ashamed of me, but I was told to do it, or things would be worse. And I had to do that. And I became willing, and I was given a job. I was given a job in Los Angeles, and I had those two kids at home, and they were young. And every morning I would hit that freeway, and rather than saying, Why me? I would every morning say, Thank you, God, for the opportunity. And I'd drive all the way into Los Angeles, and I'd get in that car to come home at night. Sometimes I'd get home at 8.30, 9 o'clock. But willingness. And I didn't make a lot of money. But little by little, it's consistency. And there's a man here tonight that helped help me during that period. Helped me before that, as a matter of fact. And I'll be forever grateful to him. But you just show up. You suit up and you show up and you don't drink. That's what we do here. Changes go on in life. Whatever's going on tonight in your life is going to change. That doesn't necessarily mean bad things are going to happen, but life happens. And every one of us in here that's been around a while, things have happened in our life. It doesn't matter whether it's within our family structure, within the business world, outside of that, but things happen. And things happen when you least expect them to happen. And they're not going to happen to me. They happen They happen to me. They happen to you. But what do we have here? We have the greatest foundation that God could have given any man. It's the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the foundation of Al-Anon. It's whatever you have. So you just show up. And my God, how blessed are we. And finally things happen a little more and a little more and a little more. And then I became willing to go back in the corporate world. And I didn't want to particularly do that, but I became willing. One more time, I had to drive to downtown Los Angeles. And I had moved and the kids were away going to school. And I'd get up the same time and go in. And I'd come home sometime at night and repeat the process. And I was grateful for the opportunity. And we finally moved. I was in the uh, wireless uh, communication field. I was head of site development for a company. By the way, we don't have any Verizon coverage here.
1: (laughs) It's
0: terrible. But you know, we moved it finally. Site development moved, and or RF moved to Orange County. And they said to me one day, have you seen the new lady that, that came to work for us? I said, no, I was kind of involved with the lady anyway. Hit and miss, but I was, we were involved. And then I heard her laughter. And then I saw her. And you know what had changed in me? We became friends. We became friends. My thought process was how do I get her in bed? That had changed. I'm not saying I didn't want to get her in bed, and I did.
1: (laughs) But that isn't the way I
0: started into the relationship. We developed a friendship. Thank God for that. And I would roll out every Friday. I had a place in the desert, and I would always say to her in the parking lot, you want to go to the desert with me? She'd say, Not yet.
1: But she's a godsend. We've
0: been together for almost 15 years. We'll be married 12 years uh, coming up in June. And she's a real blessing. She's a non-alcoholic, but she's in the middle of Al-Anon. And thank God for that. We have active alcoholism on both sides of our family today. And I know about that. And I hear about it in my Al-Anon meetings. And what a gift that program has been. Initially, when I'd been in it about a year, a good friend of mine, named Tom Whalen, we were having lunch. And he said, Lynn, what have they taught you in al I said, I'm not sure. He said, well, what have they told you to do? They've told me to keep my mouth shut.
1: And I'm a reactor.
0: took me a long time to learn how to do that, but I learned. And you know, I came here and I had camouflaged everything I was doing so very, very carefully, and I'm talking about coming back into Al-Anon, I thought everything that I was doing for my family, in my business world, for my partners, all of you, I thought they were all the appropriate things that had to be done. And I started to uncover that little by little. And you know what was at the base of all of it? It's a word called control. And I got into the al steps, and people say, well, they're the same steps we have in AA, huh? There's one word that's different, but let me tell you, you work them on the island side, they're different. That blueprint guide to progress has freed me. I've done three of them. I've done two of the big ones. Every man sitting in here in my home group has been through the blueprint guide to progress. One man that I love a lot since I've been here, he's done a third one. You need to do more. <laughs>
1: John Holmes, where
0: are you? Well, he's not here. He's left, John. See, you already, you're al non sponsor. I um, mean, he's not John Holmes. John McCloud. Yeah. All right, there you are. You're in charge of Ryan. Yeah. I'll make my amends right now. You know what, too, we do here and we do... You have to learn to laugh and scratch here because this is a joy ride. It's a gift that we're given. We're not a glum lot. It tells us that. But you've got to learn to have fun and to laugh. And we do that. Regardless of what's going on. But this lady uh, and I got married and uh, what a blessing she is. She's got active alcoholism going on on her side of the family now. I've got it going on on my side of the family. But we've got something in our group that we talk about and you all have heard it and we call it our own box. And every morning I get up I read my morning meditation I say my morning prayers I ask God every morning I thank Him for His many blessings. And for my sobriety and I ask Him please to enable me to reach out and to help someone today. And that may be one of you it may be someone else it may be someone else in the workplace it may be a family member it, may be, it, it doesn't matter who it is. Prayer and meditation work. But the thing that's worked the best for me is reaching out to other human beings and saying, how can I help you? And that has been ingrained in my life for a number of years. Totally. And it didn't get that way for a long time, but I worked on it. And it happens today. And you know we go out there every day Every day of our lives. But that box that I'm talking about that we create in al I have a conscious thought every morning of stepping into that box. And everything inside that box is my business with God's help. And everything outside of that box is none of my business. And most days I can live that way. And you go on with life. And I kind of retired. I got out of wireless and everything, but I knew I didn't want to stop working. And a man I've known for a long time, uh, he's a lawyer, but he'd started something, a company, and the idea started in 1986. And he had built a company. He saw a niche in the mid-market and for families and everything. It's called captive insurance. It's risk-free. It's, uh, it's incredible. He's built it to be about the sixth largest In the country. And he'd been after me for a long time to come in, and I said, I'm not going to do that. But I finally did it. I said, I might come in into the office. He said, Well, we'll set you up at home. I said, Good. Well, that's changed. I'm now there full time. I'm in the office. I'm working hard, and I love it. The problem is, don't get old. And Roy Lee and I were talking about it today, and I told him, I, th- I said, you know, I, we had uh, these two guys with us, and uh, I th- we had Tatum and we had Tom with us. We had a wonderful day. And uh, I told him, you get to be our age, you have two of anything, one of them hurts, the other one doesn't work.
1: <laughs> but I
0: still love what I'm doing. I've got, you know, I've got things going on with me. I've got a health problems. But I'm grateful for what I have today. But let me tell you about today, what we did. We got in that truck, and if you haven't seen Tatum with Bell, he's about 6'5", 300 pounds, and he's, and he's Bell's bodyguard.
1: And we got in his
0: truck today, and he immediately pulled his pistol out and put it right there. I said, well, we're going to have fun. And we headed to, we headed to Roy's the Ranch. His hunting ranch, which I hadn't been to in a long time, and it's local. We got to Santa Ana. We had breakfast in a little mom and pop place, and you know it's a fellowship and the things. And you just, and we 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 drove the whole ranch. I mean, it was just in a mule, and it was just incredible. And I hadn't been there in a lot of years. We didn't see any turkeys. We didn't see any deer. Saw a snake, but I've been there when I saw hundreds of turkeys and deer and everything else. But we came out of there, and, and Roy's got one of his sons that lives down here and takes care of the other ranch, which is a, which is a working ranch. And he'd met us for breakfast, and his wife was at, uh, we, I didn't know what it was. It was some kind of, I thought it was just a barbecue, barbecue some fundraiser. But it was a Lone Star barbecue cook-off. And we rolled into that thing. And I'm here to tell you that we are now official
1: judges. (laughs) I don't know who
0: tipped this guy, but he came up and he said, I understand you'll judge. I said, I've been judging people all my life.
1: (laughs) But he took all four of us in there, and I, I had no idea what was
0: going on. Put us down at a table. He said, "Well, we've got preliminaries and we have a finalist." Ta- I said, "No, we want to be at the finalist table."
1: <laughs> so we sit
0: down, and little did I know that there were going to be twenty boxes past us. And we sat there for a long, long time, and we were judges, and we had to, you know, everything we were eating. I mean, and we were, but we were the chicken guys. We were judging chicken, but they had buffalo chicken, brisket. We had it all today, but we had more fun than you can even imagine. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. It's what we have here. And I'm going to quit so we can have the dance. Where are the dresses?
1: <laughs> no?
0: I think I told Big Al last night. He, you know, if he put on a dress, I'd have the first dance with him. But you got no, you got no dress on. So I don't know what to do. But anyway, I want to see what happens there. But you know, I've loved being here. Now, I'm going to talk about something very quickly. If I'd done it in front of my talk, I wouldn't have gotten through it. I've had a tough couple of weeks. That son in Boston. They came out Easter, and they've got a son, and he's named after me. He's the fourth, and. His wife, who we love, is pregnant again. He's a great member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's 38 years old and very, very successful. and A wonderful human being. We've been going through this for uh, a few weeks. But last Friday... He was diagnosed with the disease his mother died from. And I will tell you that it's taken me to the pits. I go to bed with it. I wake up in the night with it. I take it with me every day. And I told you how powerful I think prayer is, but I won't tell you what my thought process has been. My thought process has been periodically I prayed for his mother and she died. I prayed for my mother and she died of cancer. I've prayed for tons of other people and they died. So why pray for my son? Have I stopped praying? No. But that's what's been going through my head. But I've stayed busy. Last weekend my thought was for two days I'm not going to -to man-to-man. I'm going to cancel. I'm not going on the business trip after man-to-man. I'm not going on the one next week. I know that's not the right thinking. I know that I have to keep showing up amongst you. I have to keep talking to people. I have to keep asking God for help. And that's why this weekend has been so important to me and what you've done for me. Because I felt the love here. I felt it. I felt the love of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon for many, many, many years. You've got your own stories. Things have happened in your life. But one more time, I've been taken to the mat. I just asked God to help me. But primarily, I said, Help my son. And help me accept what's going on. Pray for acceptance. Sounds easy, doesn't it? When things are going well, we can do that. Pray for God's will. When things go well, we can do that. And I've been trying to do that, I'm going to continue to try. Because you see, I love life. I love you. I love my family. I love that son more than life itself. But you're here. You're here for me. We're here for each other. And thank God we have this. What I said in the beginning about bonding, God, do we bond here? Do we love one another? Do we trust one another? You know, Dr. Bob, 1937, trust God, clean house, help others. When things happen like this in my life, and I know it's going to change because I'm going to continue to do what I've done for all these years. But sometimes it's tough to trust God. It's tough to trust God when you're in the middle of something like this. But you've got to go on, you've got to trust God, and you've got to keep praying. And I've had a wonderful weekend here. And I'm going to go on tomorrow and spend a week in the southeast on business. That doesn't mean it's going to go out of here, but I'm going to keep doing what I've done for a lot of years. When those thoughts come in, and I was taking a shower two and a half hours ago. They started to come in again. They came in about his mother. They came in about him. And in the shower, out loud, I just said, God help my son. And help me to do what I can do. And you know, he's going to do that. And you're going to love me because you do. And I'm going to love you because I love every one of you. Deep deep in my heart and soul. And I want to thank you for having me this weekend. And I'm going to close with what I normally close with because it's what I try to share.
1: And it's the story
0: of a man that owned a fine Swiss watch. And he loved that watch more than any possession he ever owned. And it stopped running on him. He'd take it to a watchmaker and he'd running over and over and over again. And he knew not what else to do. And one morning very early he was sitting in his den with a little desk lamp on. One more time winding that watch. And as he started to put it on, he looked on the, on the back of it. And he thought there were a couple of scratches. And he got a small magnifying glass out and he looked at it. There weren't, there, there weren't scratches at all. It was a very small inscription that said very simply, In case of trouble, return to Maker. In case of trouble, return to Maker. Because God could and would and does. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love all of you. And I love being sober. Thank you.